One of the things that ought to amaze us, if we will stop to consider it, is the remarkable, almost inexplainable hardness of people's hearts toward the Lord. It's not always clear or easy to see because, frankly, most people aren't aggressive in their rebellion. They are more passive in their rebellion. As a result, it might be easy to assume that most people in our world aren't really all that hard-hearted against the Lord. It would be easy to assume that they're just neutral or they have no interest in Him. But when people are pressed in some way, or cornered, or threatened, or squeezed, the true condition of the heart often comes out in plain view. Let me show you a few scriptural examples of the hardness of people's hearts. Turn with me to Matthew 28 by way of introduction. Before we resume our study of Mark, look at Matthew chapter 28. This, of course, was after the resurrection of our Lord from the dead. It happens in the early verses of chapter 28. But we want to pick up Matthew's editorial comment in verse 11, where we are told, Now while they were going, that is the disciples, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. You see what is going on here. Instead of believing in Jesus... The chief priests and elders looked for a way to cover up the resurrection. By the way, this shows the fallacy of the view that says people just need more evidence to believe in Jesus. Now, I'm not against giving people evidence. In fact, I'm for giving people evidence. But if their hearts are hard, if their hearts are willfully choosing not to believe, all the evidence in the world isn't going to make any difference. There's another illustration of this over in chapter, uh, John chapter 12. So turn from the first gospel to the final gospel, John chapter 12. And as you turn to chapter 12, let me just remind you that in chapter 11 of John's gospel, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. His, maybe his pinnacle miracle, raising Lazarus from the dead. Apart from his own resurrection, this was, uh, this was the ultimate in all of his miracles. He raised Lazarus from the dead, but we read in chapter 12, verse 9, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he, Jesus, was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So Lazarus has become a novelty. He's a, he's a unique figure. Here's the guy that was raised from the dead. Verse 10, But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Isn't that remarkable? They knew Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. 
So they wanted to cause him to die again to get rid of the evidence. Rather than being astounded and convinced and persuaded, they said, somehow we got to get rid of the evidence. Kill the guy. Too many people are turning to the Lord as a result of him. That is amazing hardness of heart. But it's not merely restricted to the past. It's still this way today in many people's lives, and it will be present in people's lives in the future. How do I know that? Let me show you. Turn all the way to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9, our Lord's final revelation to John on the Isle of Patmos when John had been banished there in about 90, 95 A.D. Revelation chapter 9. And again, just a little bit of background here. According to chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, the inhabitants of earth will know, they will know that the tragic events happening to them during the tribulation period are the judgment of God. They will know that is the case. So will they repent? Here's the answer. Chapter 9, verse 20. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. They know that planet Earth is experiencing the judgment of God, and rather than turn to the Lord, they turn farther from Him. And if that isn't shocking enough, turn over to chapter 16 of this same book. Chapter 16, verse 8. It says, Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given him to scorch men with fire, and men were scorched with great heat. Now, did that bring them to repentance? No. Look at the next phrase. And they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. That is unimaginable defiance. What a depiction of the hardness of people's hearts toward the Lord. Neither grace nor judgment penetrates such hardness. Did you catch that? Neither grace nor judgment penetrates such hardness. This explains why our Lord was so abrupt at times with those who had hardened their hearts in this way. We see an example of that very thing in the text to which we come this morning. So please turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Go back to the second book of the New Testament, the second gospel record, as we resume our series through this gospel account. Mark chapter 8. And please follow along as I read just three verses, verses 11 through 13. Mark chapter 8, verse 11. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them. And getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. At this point in Jesus' ministry, it's important to understand 
The sides have been drawn. Back in chapter 3, the religious leaders of Israel made their official and final declaration concerning Jesus. What was it? They said he was satanic. They knew that wasn't true, and they had seen plenty of evidence to prove otherwise, but they made a willful and final decision to reject Jesus as their Messiah. When they did, many of the people in the society went right along with them. So the lines were drawn and the sides have been taken. Very few people in society were neutral about Jesus at this point. They were either for him or against him. This resulted in the religious leaders becoming more bold in their attempts to trap Jesus, which is exactly what we see in this text before us. Mark tells us in verse 11, Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. Matthew tells us that this group trying to test Jesus or trap him also included the Sadducees. Mark doesn't mention that detail, but you need to understand in your mind that both the Pharisees and the Sadducees were involved in in this plot, and it was a plot. We've already met these two groups before, so I'll only remind you of who they were. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were two of the most prominent groups in first century Israel. They both had a lot of power, they both had a lot of influence, and they both strove with each other to get the upper hand in this power struggle in society. Now, whenever you hear the term Pharisee, you probably have a very negative view in your mind. In fact, we use that term today, many people, as a pejorative. Oh, he's such a Pharisee. She's a Pharisee. And the reason you have a negative view in your mind is probably because of all the things you read in the Gospels about the Pharisees being hypocritical and prideful and overbearing, etc. But understand something. This group wasn't always like that. The Pharisees started in the intertestamental period, that is, between the Old and New Testament, in response to the vast numbers of Jewish people who did not take the Word of God seriously. Their group started as a reaction to the liberalism that began to take hold in Israel. They had separated themselves off from all common life and from all common tasks in order to make it the one aim of their lives to keep every smallest detail of the scribal law. Their very name means the separated ones. Pharisees means literally the separated ones. This was the highest level of religious achievement in Israel. So they started out with commendable men and with a commendable cause, but they ended up getting off track by adding to and even taking away from the Word of God. As a result of this, the strongest rebukes Jesus ever gave, and you know this if you've read your Bible, the strongest rebukes Jesus ever gave were against the Pharisees. Why did he rebuke them? It's important that you understand why. He rebuked them for adding to the Word of God, which resulted in the Word of God becoming adulterated and distorted and diluted. Now, please hear me when I say this. Please. Jesus did not rebuke the Pharisees 
for taking the Word of God seriously and expecting others to take the Word of God seriously. I cannot count the number of times through the years I have heard people try to say that if you believe the Word of God, and if you take the Word of God seriously, and if you stand for the Word of God, then you are being a Pharisee. That is such a common misconception within Christendom. If you proclaim that the Word of God says, just let me use an example. If you proclaim that the Word of God says it's a sin to get drunk, some people will say you are being a judgmental Pharisee. If you proclaim that salvation is only in Jesus Christ and not in anything else, not in any other religion, some people will say you are being a judgmental Pharisee. If you proclaim that the Bible says it's a sin to live together before marriage, some people will say, oh, you're, you're being a judgmental Pharisee. If you proclaim that the Word of God does not support praying to Mary and dead saints, some people will say you are being a judgmental Pharisee. And we could multiply examples, but you get the point. If you take the Word of God seriously and you stand for the Word of God, then that does not mean you are being a Pharisee. Contrary to popular opinion among many Christians. Jesus did not. I'm going to emphasize this. Jesus did not rebuke the Pharisees for taking the Word of God seriously. He did not rebuke them for expecting others to take the Word of God seriously. He rebuked them because they added their own standards to the Word of God, and then they looked down on others who didn't follow their standards. Jesus condemned them for transgressing the commandments of God, not for keeping them. He condemned them for transgressing the commandments of God by their traditions, and here's his exact words, for teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So he condemned them for teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, not for teaching the Word of God. So that's what they did. And they added to their error by assuming they were better than others who didn't follow all of their man-made religious mandates. That's the Pharisees. The second group mentioned in Matthew's account, not mentioned in Mark's, is the Sadducees. They were also a part of this plot, this test. This, in, this intention to trap Jesus. The Pharisees were the religious legalists. The Sadducees were the religious liberals. The Sadducees did not believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in future bodily resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. Yet amazingly, they were the group that was in, was in control of the temple in first century Israel. Now why would a group who didn't believe in hardly anything, angels, life after death, future resurrection, why would they control the temple? I'll tell you why. It had become a political opportunity for them, a business opportunity for them. It's very lucrative to be in control of the temple. Now you can see why Jesus had such harsh words for these two groups and why John the Baptist had such harsh words for them when he encountered them in his ministry. The Pharisees disregarded the Word of God by elevating their traditions and commandments with the result that the Word of God was just lost in the shuffle. The Sadducees disregarded the Word of God by dismissing the parts of it they didn't like or they didn't agree with. As you might imagine, these two groups didn't get along with each other very well. 
They were always fighting, trying to get the upper hand. But, but, they found a common cause in their desire to trap Jesus. They both detested Jesus more than they detested one another because Jesus was a threat to their influence and their power and their positions. So Mark tells us here in verse 11, they came to Jesus to test him, to trap him, to argue with him, and they asked for a sign from heaven. In other words, a sign of astronomical proportions. Jesus, don't just do these things you've been doing, as marvelous as they were, healing a leper, giving sight to the blind. Give us a sign of astronomical proportions. You know, maybe make the temple elevate into the sky and fly out over the Dead Sea and then come back, or something ridiculous like that. Give us a sign of astronomical proportions, and then we'll believe in you. We know from the gospel accounts that they didn't really want to see a sign from Jesus. And if they did see one, they had no intention of believing in him. I mean, think about it. How many signs had they already seen? Well, we don't know. But by this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has already cast out demons, healed Peter's mother-in-law of a life-threatening fever, healed various diseases, cleansed a leper, healed a paralytic, calmed a raging storm on the Sea of Galilee, cast demons into a herd of swine, raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, healed a woman with a 12-year flow of blood, fed 5,000, walked on the water, healed multitudes at Gennesaret, delivered a young Syrophoenician girl, healed a deaf mute, and fed 4,000. And that's just what has been recorded in Mark. Who knows what else Jesus did by this time that Mark didn't record, that they knew about, that they had seen. So it's obvious that the Pharisees didn't really want to see a sign from Jesus. They just wanted to trap him or ensnare him in some way. And Jesus knew this. So rather than granting their request, he rebuked them for their hardness of heart. Look at verse 12. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Don't miss that little introductory phrase that Mark gives us at the beginning of this verse. Jesus sighed deeply. He was so disappointed so grieved, so sorrowful, so saddened by their hardness of heart. This grief would continue to build throughout our Lord's ministry to the point that it finally burst forth in tears in Luke 19. Let me show you what I mean. Turn over to the next gospel account, Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verse 41 right near the end of the chapter. Luke 19, 41 says, Now as he, the he, of course, a reference to Jesus, now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. 
This is one of two occasions when our Lord wept. The other occasion took place not far from this one. It's recorded in John 11. John 11 tells us about when Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus in Bethany, which is just on the back side of the Mount of Olives. When Jesus arrived there and saw the grief caused by sin and death, John tells us he was moved to tears. One of the shortest verses, the shortest verse in our English Bibles, Jesus wept, John 11. This event here in Luke 19 also took place on the Mount of Olives, according to verse 37. So the two times Jesus wept, as recorded in the Gospels, were in very close proximity to each other. This time Jesus wept because his heart was broken over the judgment that was coming to the Jewish people for rejecting him. That's why I said earlier that our Lord's grief would build throughout his ministry to the point that it finally would burst forth in tears. We see a hint of that in Mark 8 when we are told that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. So let's go back to our text there in Mark 8. Verse 12 tells us Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. And he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. The question that Jesus asks in the middle of this verse is a rhetorical question. In other words, he didn't intend for anyone to really answer the question, but he asked it to force the Pharisees to think about what they were doing and why they were asking for a sign. He knew they didn't really want more evidence to believe, but it's possible that they would not admit that was the case. What I mean is, it's possible that they had deceived themselves into thinking that they just wanted or needed more evidence. So Jesus was pressing the point that their problem wasn't a lack of evidence. Their problem was hardness of heart and willful unbelief. They had been given more than enough signs to prove to them that he was the Messiah. After all, he was doing the things their scripture said the Messiah would do, and he was doing things that only the Messiah could do. The signs were all around them, but they refused to see them. That's why I said this, that this was willful. It's important to emphasize that. Beloved, understand, it's not that they were confused. Sometimes Christians will read the gospel accounts and they almost start feeling sorry for these people. Like, man, Jesus is so hard on them. They weren't confused. It's not that they didn't understand. It's not that they needed a little more time. No, they could see what the signs said. They knew what the signs pointed to, but they refused to accept what the signs were saying. That's why Jesus is so firm with them. He says that no sign, this is the way it's re recorded or translated in most of our English Bibles, no sign shall be given to this generation. Actually, this expression in the Greek text is a Hebrew idiom used in oaths. It literally reads this way, but you, you'll understand why the translators didn't render it this way. It literally reads, if a sign is given to this generation, and the conclusion is left unstated. That's the way it's worded. It implies something awful, something terrible. If a sign is given to this generation, now you fill in the blank, may God punish me or something like that. 
It's a very strong way of saying what our English translations have, have indicated. No sign, no sign shall be given to this generation. By the way, one of the reasons why Jesus is so firm here is because he's already had this conversation with this exact same group at an earlier time. This isn't the first time. Let me show you what I mean. Back up to Matthew chapter 12 where it took place. Go back to Matthew. Matthew 12, and this is earlier than our our text in Mark 8. Matthew 12, verse 38. Matthew tells us, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. This is not the same event now. Don't confuse the two. This is earlier. We want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Now understand the context. We're jumping in the middle in a sense here. But in the verses leading up to verse 38 here, Jesus strongly rebuked the scribes and Pharisees for stating that he did his miracles by the power of Satan. Jesus reproved them by saying that to reject all the evidence given by the Holy Spirit and to attribute his works to Satan was the unpardonable sin of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So they were really feeling the heat of Jesus' rebuke. And that's why they try to change the subject, in a sense, with this request here in verse 38. They're, they're feeling the heat. Uh, teacher, just give us a sign, okay? Just show us something, and then we'll believe. They're trying to get out of the crosshairs by giving the impression that they're open to viewing Jesus in a different way if he will just show them a sign or a miracle. But understand, he just showed them a miracle in this context, and they accused him of performing it by Satan's power. So why would it make any difference if he showed them another one? It wouldn't. It wouldn't make any difference whatsoever. They really didn't want to see any more signs. They had seen multitudes of signs. They just didn't want to admit that their rejection of Jesus was a choice. They wanted it to look like they just didn't have enough evidence yet. By the way, beloved, this is still the way some people respond today. They try to hide behind a supposed lack of evidence as the reason for not believing in Jesus and not submitting to Jesus, but that's rarely the real issue. Now, sometimes it could be. We don't want to paint with a broad brush everybody in the same category, but the fact is, very rarely are there people who haven't believed in Jesus because they just don't have enough information, especially in our culture. They may, they may hide behind that, but the real issue, just as it was here, is that they don't want to let go of their own self-will and submit to Jesus as their king. All the information is there. If a person is willing to look at it openly, honestly, objectively. But that's the real hang-up. People refuse to believe in Jesus because they don't want to believe in him, especially when they understand that believing in Him means that you surrendered Him as your Lord. And the scribes and Pharisees certainly realized that. They understood there that much. They got it. They knew the implications of embracing the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of David. I mean, in their minds, it's simple. If He's the Messiah, He's to be obeyed. You have to obey Him. 
And frankly, they didn't want to obey him. He was a threat to them and their power and their positions, their popularity. Thus, there was no way they were going to submit to him. But they wanted it to appear like they just didn't have enough information. So they asked for a sign. And in verse 39, Jesus answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What a stinging rebuke. Jesus referred to them as an evil and adulterous generation. Why that terminology? Because they were spiritually adulterous in that they were completely unfaithful to God. They had willingly wandered from Him and His Word, and they had embraced their own man-made religious rules, regulations, and rituals. They had perverted and prostituted their positions of spiritual leadership. So Jesus referred to them as an evil and adulterous generation, and he said no more signs would be given to them. After all, he had already given them more than enough signs to demonstrate his claims of deity and his claims to be the Messiah. They didn't need any more. The fact that they asked for more showed the wickedness of their hearts. Now understand, it's not that miraculous signs are inherently evil. Obviously not. In fact, John tells us he wrote his gospel around certain signs that he recorded so that people would believe in Jesus. So signs are not inherently evil. What is evil is when people become fixated on signs instead of focused on the Lord and His Word. That is the natural tendency of the evil human heart. Sadly, we see this same kind of thing happening in some segments of Christianity that are so focused on miraculous signs instead of focused on the Lord and His Word. That's the wrong focus, beloved. So Jesus informed them that the only sign they would be given would be His resurrection. He says in verse 40, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. By the way, as a little side note, don't let the phrase three days and three nights confuse you. Don't read that as a 21st century American. By Jewish reckoning, this was a common way to express a period of time that included any parts of three days. Therefore, since Jesus was placed in the tomb on a Friday and raised from the dead on Sunday morning, he was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Expressions like this were common in Semitic usage. It would be like you saying to someone, you know, you, you go to work, say your job's 8 to 5, you worked on this one project throughout the day, and then the next day you said to someone, I worked on that project all day. Well, you don't mean that you got up and worked on it at breakfast. You, you started working on it when you got to work, and then you quit at 5, and you didn't work on it throughout the rest of the day, but that's just an experience. I worked on that all day yesterday. Well, that, that was the, the same kind of expressions were like that were used in Semitic uh, languages, and we don't want to push them to say, well, we've got we to gotta back up the crucifixion of Jesus to Wednesday or Thursday in an attempt to accommodate this expression. No, the phrase three days and three nights did not mean every hour and every minute of all three days and nights. Everyone in that culture understood what was meant by the phrase. So since Jesus was placed in the tomb on a Friday and raised from the dead on Sunday morning, he fulfilled this expression. 
And that was the ultimate sign of his entire ministry. Everything Jesus said and taught and stood for and claimed depended on one thing, an empty tomb, his resurrection. The religious leaders asked for another sign, and Jesus told them that they had already been given enough signs, and they wouldn't be given any more signs except the sign of his resurrection. And that sign would validate everything Jesus had ever proclaimed. So, I show you this passage just to press the point that in Mark 8, when we read about them requesting a sign again, this isn't, that wasn't the first time they had this conversation with Jesus. This event preceded Mark 8. So let's go back to our text there in Mark chapter 8. So Jesus has already had this conversation before with many of the religious leaders of Israel. He's already stated that they are evil and adulterous for trying to press him in that way and ask for a sign when they didn't really want a sign. And that's why he is so abrupt with them on this occasion. He knows what's in their hearts. He's been down this road with them before. So Mark tells us he simply rebuked them again and left. Look at verse 13. And he left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now, it would be very easy to read those words just sort of as the, you know, the capsulizing of this brief story or the conclusion. But look at those words. Those are haunting words. He left them. He left them. They had the privilege of having the blessed Son of God in their very midst. But you could say it this way. They drove him away. It's incomprehensible. He left them. As I've mentioned in the past, when the Lord leaves you alone, you're really in trouble. We think we're in trouble when the Lord is after us. You've probably had that experience in life where you're not maybe doing what you ought to be doing, living the way, sort of like Jonah, you know, when the Lord's after you, you think that you're really in trouble then. That's not really being in trouble. That's a good thing when the Lord's after you. It's when the Lord leaves you alone that you're really in trouble. When he just takes hands off and says, okay, that's it. Just go your own way. Mark says the Lord left them and departed. He walked away from this group of Pharisees and Sadducees. They were religious people, but they weren't saved people. They were religious and looked the part, but their hearts were incredibly hard. Their exposure to Jesus hardened their hearts instead of softening them. Let that be a warning to you. Their exposure to Jesus hardened their hearts instead of softening them. Listen, the same thing could happen to you if you don't truly surrender your life to Christ. The most graphic illustration of this is what we read in Revelation 20 about the future millennial kingdom of our Lord. Even after, now catch this, even after Jesus has been reigning on the earth throughout the millennium and the inhabitants of the earth have enjoyed peace and prosperity beyond description, John tells us an innumerable innumerable number will join in Satan's final revolt. He says, as the number of the sand of the sea. That final rebellion will prove a very important point. 
You can't change a man's heart simply by changing his circumstances. That event at the end of the millennium is further proof of that fact. You cannot change a man's heart simply by changing his circumstances. As we saw earlier in Revelation, people will not embrace Christ when they are under the judgments of the tribulation, and people will not embrace Christ when they are under the blessings of the kingdom. Neither grace nor judgment penetrates such a heart. What a vivid illustration of God's diagnosis of the human heart. It's hard to fathom. And it's also hard to fathom how these people here in Mark 8 who had the privilege of being in the very presence of the flawless Son of God could be so calloused. Yet the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. So I warn you, the same thing could be true in your life. Just because you're around Christians, that doesn't make you a Christian. Working at McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger, right? We all understand that. And just being around Christians doesn't make you a Christian. So maybe there are some people here today who blend in the crowd. You come to church. You, you go to Bible studies. You, you look like a true believer, but you're not. You go along with the flow, but you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. You don't have a genuine relationship with Him. I tell you, thoughts like these haunt me. When I, every, every time I look out at a crowd, I, I, I think, who, who out there is like this? Who out there is like Judas Iscariot, where everyone th around thinks, oh, what a neat Christian guy, what a neat Christian gal, and yet he or she is not real, not genuine. I appeal to you. I beg you to admit you're not really a Christian if you're not. Swallow your pride and submit your life to Christ. Embrace Him, lest your exposure results in a hard heart instead of a soft one. Would you please bow your head with me? And as you do, would you please be honest before God? And look at your life and see if you really, genuinely know Christ. I'm not asking if you're religious. I'm not asking if you attend church. You're here this morning. That's obvious. That's not the issue. If you're religious or you're a church attender. But do you know and love Christ? Have you submitted to him? This story, this very brief story we read is such, such an example how people can be in the very presence of the Son of God and yet get harder and harder. If that's you, cry out to God for mercy this morning before it's too late. And if you are a child of God, that same principle could still be true in our lives. We can allow our exposure just to cause us to treat the things of the Lord as commonplace, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time, if you've been in church a lot, it's just very easy to allow the familiarity to breed a contempt. So let's ask the Lord to keep our hearts soft, to soften them, to keep them tender before him as a result of what we've seen this morning.
Father, as we close our time together this morning, we, when we really look at this story, brief as it is, it, it is shocking that there would be people who really want to trap Jesus, who really want to pin him in a, in a corner, make him look bad, get him in trouble, discredit him, kill him, just do whatever to, to get him out of their lives because he was such a threat to them. Oh, what a, what a picture of the hardness of our hearts, the, the natural condition of our hearts apart from your grace and the softening from your spirit. And so we call out to you this morning. We, we don't want to look down our noses at these people in this story as if somehow we're above them or better than them because apart from your grace, we're no different. And so we pray that your spirit would keep our hearts soft and that your spirit would, would continue to prompt us and that we would be sensitive to your spirit. And in closing, we especially want to pray for anyone who is here with us this morning who, like Judas, isn't real, maybe appears to be real, looks genuine to everyone around him or her, but doesn't truly know Christ. Father, we, we recognize our inability to get through to him or her. We can't. As much as we might want to try, we, we can't. Only you can. And we pray that you would. Somehow, someway, whatever it, whatever it would take, that you would get through to that person and cause him or her to admit that they're not really a child of God. They don't really belong to Christ. But may that change today. We pray in Jesus' precious and wonderful name. Amen.